This sermon was recorded at the Johnson County Congregation of Redeemer Fellowship, a church that exists to cultivate communities of transformed disciples who live for the glory of God and the good of the city. For more information, visit RedeemerKansasCity.org. Our scripture reading comes from John 11, starting at verse 17. You can find it on the Black Pew Bible in front of you on page 897. Page 897, John 11, verses 17 through 27. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. Good morning, everyone. My name is Mark, and I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, If you're new or you're visiting, welcome. We're really glad that you're here. Uh, Let me pray for us, and then we'll get started. Father, I'm struck this morning by the uselessness of man's words. Jesus, only you can command a dead person to get out of a tomb. We need your power. We need you this morning more than we need anything else. We need to see you, Jesus. We need to truly see you this morning. Would you open our eyes again? Would you open our eyes to your power and your wonder and your might and your majesty? Would you help us to believe deep in our hearts and bodies that You were raised from the dead, Jesus. I ask that we would embrace your resurrection differently this morning than when we got here. Fill us with faith. Fill us with faith, I ask, in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. In the the philosopher and theologian John Milbanks' acclaimed tome, Theology and Social Theory, he opens the first chapter with this famous and controversial sentence. Once there was no secular. Once there was no secular. And what, he, what he's naming is that there was a time when the phrase or the question, do you believe in God, was completely unintelligible. It would have been akin to saying, my favorite shape is a square circle. Or maybe, do you believe in wetness? 
What do you mean, do I believe in wetness? What kind of a question is that? The answer is that it's a nonsensical question. And once, before the modern era, there was no secular. Because the secular had to be invented. The bill of goods that's been sold to us is that a world that can entertain the thought of there not being a God didn't have to be contrived. The lie that we're told constantly by our culture, by academia, by our leaders, is that this is what you get if you just evacuate the material world of all things that are religious or spiritual. And that's not true. Secularity had to be thought up and it had to be applied. Objective scientific fact that is completely separate and completely ah theological is a myth. It's a myth. It's a phantom. It's quite literally a fairy tale. And this myth is everywhere. And it's the reason that Christians feel pressure to believe that the resurrection of Jesus is a myth or a metaphor or a parable or a figure of speech. The resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead is not a Christian fairy tale. And it's not a Christian figure of speech. Let me get real earthy and basic. Christians do not believe that Jesus sort of died or that he was sort of was raised from the dead. Christians claim that there's a God man alive right now who walked on earth 33 years ago or for for 33 years and he was killed. He was killed, not because he was a zealot or because he was Gandhi or because he was some kind of political revolutionary. He didn't get killed for threatening to topple the power structures of society. He walked and talked and yelled and rebuked and insulted dangerous religious people and said unequivocally, I am God the Son. He claimed divinity, and that meant he didn't only deserve to be considered, he deserved to be worshipped. He deserves our lives. He deserves everything we have to be aimed toward him and offered to him. The portions of society that claim neutrality, that claim to be evacuated of religious belief or sentiment, just aren't. They're not neutral. In God's world, there's no cities of refuge away from his presence. All of life is a theological commitment. All of life is a theological exercise, even and especially for the anti-theological. And Christian, we need not fear, we need not pretend that sanctuaries away from the living God even exist because they don't. There's no opting out of this question. There's no marking N-A on the form. He's the great I am and all the claims and constructs of secularity as an ideology is just an ostrich hiding its head in the sand, pretending that there's no God. You can't just ignore the God of the universe that he created and call that objective reason or objective science. Claiming that we can explain the world without God is a posture of insurrection and a position of rebellion from the creatures, you and me. And today, today, like no other day on the church calendar, we get the opportunity to remember and announce and proclaim that no, Mr. Philosopher, God's not dead Although he did die in the God-man Jesus Christ on Good Friday, today he lives and he reigns and he exists as the Lord of all things. 
Today, brothers and sisters, we get to remember that though the world may hate us like it hated Jesus, we can take heart because Jesus overcame the world. We can be free from the pressure to fit in today. Family, we can, like the writer of Hebrews says, go meet Jesus outside the camp. Because if you're united with him in a death like his, you will most assuredly be raised in a resurrection like his. Easter is a unique day because it's a day that Christians get to face their own kind of lingering, blushing unbelief when it comes to the resurrection. Because the world, the world, you see, isn't squeamish about how ridiculous we are. Non-Christians don't have any problem saying it bluntly. Those people are crazy. They believe a, a human being died and was raised from the dead, and that human being was the God of the universe. Sometimes the world says it better than we do. But friends, don't expect to be understood here or seen or appreciated by others here. Don't expect them to respect your views. The truth is that if Christ not be raised, we're more to be pitied than anyone. Than anyone. If Jesus didn't come back from the dead, we're idiots. We're fools and we should be mocked. But, but if he did, if he did, then we have a real problem on our hands for a godless worldview. And in John chapter 11, we see that Jesus says it plain as day. I am the resurrection and I am the life. It isn't that there won't be a resurrection on the last day. The prophet Isaiah says in chapter 26, your dead shall live, their bodies shall rise. You who dwell in the dust, awake and sing for joy for your dew is a dew of light and the earth will give birth to the dead. Isaiah 26, 19. There was an understanding between Martha and Jesus that God had plans for the resurrection of his people at the last day. Jesus knew what Martha was referring to here. For context, in this section of John, a man named Lazarus, a man named Lazarus is about to be raised from the dead by Jesus. Full stop. Let's not move too fast. A man was about to be raised from the dead by Jesus. Jesus was going to command a dead body to obey him, and it does. Jesus is about to open up a window into his glory and his power for all to see and give a foretaste of his own death and his own resurrection that's imminent. The gospel writer gives us a long and detailed picture of Jesus here. He has friends who are two sisters and a brother, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. Lazarus is sick. And his sisters have sent word back to Jesus to let him know that. They've, said, they've sent word that the one whom you love, whom you love, is sick. The sisters are hoping that Jesus will show up and heal their brother. They no doubt are eager to reach Jesus with this news so that he'll do something about it. But Jesus doesn't. He doesn't hurry when Jesus gets news, he stays right where he is for two more days. The text says that he did this because he loved them, because he loved this man and his sisters. This story in John's gospel is a glorious picture of Jesus's own death and resurrection. This story is also catalytic in the sense that after this, after this resurrection miracle, the religious officials become aggressively set 
on killing Jesus. You see, this story, the story of Lazarus being raised from the dead really is not about Lazarus at all. It's about Jesus. It's about Jesus. The point of Easter is Jesus. The point of the Bible is Jesus. The point of this church is Jesus. The point of our lives is Jesus. The point of our money is Jesus. The central animating reality in the universe is Jesus Christ. Jesus is the resurrection. What does that mean for us? So let me get really granular. If Jesus is alive and he is the resurrection of the life and and the life, then let's ask, what does that mean for my pain? What does that mean for my comfort? What does that mean for my calling? What does that mean for my body? What does that mean for my future or, or name it, right? Any other of a hundred things, what does that mean for me? Then right now today, I'm gonna walk us through four quick movements and talk about what Jesus being the resurrection and the life has to do with our pain, has to do with our bodies, our physical bodies, what it has to do with our flourishing and what it has to do with our future, If Jesus is the resurrection and the life, why do I still have pain in my life? If I placed my faith in Jesus, why is my life still full of grief and hurt and unmet expectation and reproach and reviling? What good is this resurrection to my right now? If Jesus is the resurrection, that means that that just like with Lazarus, that this sickness, this pain, this suffering does not lead to death, So it is with us. Back in chapter 11, verse 4, you can read that when Jesus heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was and he said, this illness does not lead to death. It's for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. The men he was with surely thought that Jesus planned to get to Lazarus before he died and heal him of the sickness. But that's not what Jesus meant. He meant something else. And if you're a Christian this morning, I get the enormous privilege of reminding you right here, right now, that your sickness ultimately does not lead to death. If you're a Christian this morning, there's meaning in your pain. The very same meaning that we see in this text, because Lazarus died again, right? He died again. He lived a life like a normal human being, and then he died again, just like any other person. But the glory of God that Jesus demonstrates and shows and displays right here never dies. It only builds and swells and grows in momentum until it's going to cover the earth like the waters of the sea. The book of Romans says... We also glory in our suffering because we know that suffering produces perseverance. And perseverance, character. And character, hope. And James says, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces in you perseverance. And 2 Corinthians says, therefore, we do not lose heart, though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. And Romans 8.28 says, every single thing, all things work together for good 
for those that love God and are called according to his purposes. So I want, to, I want us to see today that when you find yourself looking out at the world and you see things in your life that are rotten, Jesus is the resurrection. Where you see corruption, Jesus is the resurrection. Where you see rust and corrosion, Jesus is the resurrection. Where you see damage, Jesus is the resurrection. Just like Martha, Martha, we tend to look at the dire reality of our circumstances and we say, I think I know that one day things will be different, but Jesus, he looks at us right here today and says, I am that day. I am that day. It's me that you're longing for, not merely the healing of your sickness. And he says it to us today, right now. Do you long for peace? Your longing can only be met by Jesus. Do you long for everything that's everything to be healed that's diseased and everything to be mended that's ripped? That longing is made to be fulfilled by the resurrection and the life. Do you, do, you make, do, you, do you long to be made well all the way to the bottom of who you are? That longing is for Jesus to fulfill. Your pain in this life does not ultimately lead to death, Christian. It has a purpose, and that purpose is to glorify God and to work for your eternal good. What does Jesus' statement mean for my body? So Christians, I don't know how many are aware, but Christians do not believe that we will all become angels when we die. Cats will become angels. That I'm kidding. <laughs> Christians don't believe that we will be ethereal spirits floating around in heaven forever with harps. Christians will be resurrected. Romans 6 says, starting in verse 1, what shall we say then? Are we to sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, surely we will be united with him in a resurrection like his. This isn't only symbolic with regards to baptism. The symbol that we saw down here in front of the pulpit this morning, it, 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 it isn't only a symbolic reality of what's going on now, it's, it speaks to a future reality that is sure for every single believer. We will have new bodies. This is what Christians unashamedly believe. We're not embarrassed by this and we're not going to pretend that it isn't true because Jesus is the resurrection and the life. You who believe in him will also follow into his footsteps into a glorified body. I'm not going to try and make that palatable for the secular world. I'm not going to make that less fantastic or less glorious than it's meant, meant to be by diminishing the authority of scripture. <clears throat> I'm not going to explain it away. Every single person in this room is going to live forever, forever. Every single one of us, 
All of us will live forever with God in the presence of his infinite love, or we will live without God in the presence of his infinite wrath. Jesus is the resurrection and the life. And if you believe in him, you'll experience eternal life with him in your glorified, resurrected bodies. What does it mean that Jesus is the resurrection and the life for my flourishing? For me to have a sense of coherence as a person. You see, sin breaks us into pieces. We have broken relationships inside ourselves. We have broken relationships outside with other people. And we have a severely broken relationship with God. We see the broken relationship with ourselves plainly in the fact that we tend to be double-minded as people. We deceive ourselves. We can see pretty easily that we often don't understand ourselves. We don't understand our motivations, our desires, our frustrations. We are often a walking contradiction between what we believe and what we say we value. The relationship within ourselves is broken. Sin breaks our relationship with others as well. We hurt one another. We strive and grasp for what others have. We're jealous of each other. We envy one another. When someone succeeds, we get angry or jealous. When we see others with opportunities that we think that we deserve, we get mad. We get mad and envious and bitter and resentful. Our relationships with other people are broken because of sin. And most importantly, sin breaks our relationship with God. The Bible says that we're born with a default setting to hate God. All of us are. We are by nature children of wrath. We want what God has. We are rebellious. We're angry with him for having authority over us. We're jealous of his power. We don't want to submit to him. We want everything our own way and we want it right now. We can't see the kingdom of God and we can't be in right relationship with God. That relationship is broken. We are fractured into a million pieces and we hate that about ourselves. But if Jesus is the resurrection and the life, there's hope. There's hope. There's wholeness and the kind of wholeness and flourishing you long for can only truly be found in Jesus. A secular psychological definition of the, of, from the world of wholeness it goes something like this. Wholeness takes the broken parts of our lives and puts them back together, perhaps in new ways, through change and growth. And let me just say, to accomplish that all the way to the bottom of who we are is impossible without Jesus. True and lasting transformation and change that pleases God is only possible through Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 3 says, And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image, that's the image of Jesus, from one degree of glory to another. Jesus said the thief comes to only steal and kill and destroy, and I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. John 1.4, speaking about Jesus, says, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. 
In John 14, Jesus says about himself, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. Later in John 6, 35, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. And then in John 6, Jesus says, it is the spirit who gives life. The flesh is of no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. So fullness, flourishing, true light and life, Truly abundant life is only found in Jesus. The kind, the kind of, of wholeness that broken lives are longing for is only found in Jesus. If you want to be made whole, you can only find it in resurrection power. Ephesians 1, 18 through 20 talks about resurrection power this way. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable, immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. It's resurrection power, Christian, that you need to understand as you fight the fight of faith to love God and to love other people well. It's resurrection power that you need, Christian, to know your calling and your hope is secure. The same power at work in Jesus Christ's resurrection is at work inside you right now. Right now. And what does that mean for our future? I heard a quote this week from a friend who was considering whether or not to hire or, uh, or um, terminate someone at his work. And he said, he said, quote, past performance is the best predictor of future performance. And I heard that. And the first thing I thought was, thank God that isn't the case when Jesus is involved. Yes. Amen. You don't, you, Yeah. It is not the case when Jesus is involved. Our future is different, brothers and sisters. You don't have a gloomy future. You don't have a dead end future. You don't have to have a shipwrecked life in your future like the one you might have had in your past. You don't need to fret or fear because your past performance is not the best predictor of your future because you're not graded on your past performance. You're graded on Jesus's past performance. And when you love that, when you cherish that, when you delight in that, when you hold that close and dear, when you feel the weight of that deep in your bones, it changes you. It changes you from the inside out. You won't be the same. You're not the same yesterday. You're not the same today. And you won't be the same person tomorrow. When Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead in this chapter of John, he has a goal in mind and it's way more than what we might think. Jesus tells us plainly what he's up to in verse four. He says the illness doesn't lead to death. It's for the glory of God. Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead so that you and me and all the people who watched could have the opportunity to fall on our faces in wonder and astonishment. 
You know, we know that we don't deserve to be in the presence of a holy God. We know that we don't deserve to be touched and made pure and clean and cleansed and holy. We know that we can't even figure out our own lives. We can't figure out our own heart. We can't figure out our own kids. And we can't figure out our own marriages. We can't make ourselves full of life and living water. And when Jesus gives all these people a glimpse of his resurrection glory, reality opens up for them and they believe. They see it. They see the glory of Jesus. And that, friends, is our future for all those who believe in him. The fact that Jesus is the resurrection and the life means that nothing untrue in my life gets the last word. It means that nothing ugly in my past gets to define me. It means that nothing unjust in this world will win. Nothing corrupted will last. It means nothing broken won't be put back together. Nothing terrible won't be stopped. It means that our future is sure and secure and glorious with Jesus. Jesus is the Lord of everyone and everything, and we'll be with him in our resurrected bodies forever. Now, before I close, before I close today, I just want to re reiterate one more time the exact text of John 11, verse 25. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. So here's the deal. We're invited to ask a question this morning, pretty obviously in my opinion. We're invited to ask the question about what we believe in, what we set our hope on. What do we believe in? Do you perchance believe that this modern world that we live in is what you get when you just vacuum out all the religious and spiritual superstition. Because if you do, I want to make an honest appeal. I want to appeal to you to believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. The resurrected Christ is Lord, not Caesar, not the president, not me, and not you. Christ is Lord. And he offers himself to you today saying, if you believe in him, you'll find true and abundant life. If you believe in him, you'll find forgiveness for all of your sins, past, present, and future. And if you believe in him, you'll find a hope, a hope that lasts and lasts and lasts even beyond the grave. The Lord is risen. The Lord is risen. If you set all of your hope, all of your faith on Jesus Christ for salvation, for life, for fullness, you're a Christian. And here as we end the service, we'll invite you to come up and take communion. This is the place that we proclaim proclaim the fact that we have new life inside of us now and we take it outside of these walls to other people so that they can meet Jesus too. The way that we take communion here at Redeemer is we break a piece of bread off and we dip it into a cup. The stoneware is wine and the glassware is juice. There are a few different stations. 
There's one down here to my right and to my left. And then over here to my far right, there'll also be a gluten-free station that's also single serve. And we have a station up in the balcony. So everyone who's setting their hope on Jesus to be their righteousness, we invite you to take communion. And if that's not you, we actually invite you to stay in your seats. And we would appeal to you, invite you to even pray. Ask God to reveal himself to you. Ask this Jesus to reveal himself to you. The servers are going to come up in just a minute, and I'm going to pray. For those of you who are trusting Jesus today, come, come up when you're ready. So, Father, Man, would you awaken new life in hearts in this room right now? Right now. Jesus, would you get so much glory in our church from changing our lives? Would you get so much glory from watching people drop the things they hope in and grab a hold of you instead? Would you convict the prideful in this room right now? Would you comfort the weary and the lost and the broken? Would you transform us? Would you knit our hearts? Would you fill us with faith? Would you fill us with a a desire and a joy that spills out past these walls into our neighborhoods and homes and vocations? Would you like ignite our hearts with affection and love for all the people that we see, that we would demonstrate the love of Christ to our neighbors and our friends. Would you fill us with faith even this morning as we eat? And would you sink, sink the depths of the reality of your resurrection down into the bottom of our souls, down into the foundation of who we are, down into the entire structure of how we look at the world and how we experience relationships, would you use your resurrection power to change us, make it deeper and stronger and fuller than it's ever been before, I ask, in the name of Jesus who's alive right now. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Come up when you're ready.